It is 7 p.m. on September 22nd, 2020. Welcome to our currently untitled podcast where law students discuss law review articles. I'm Tony Fernando and I'm joined today by Shenley Kent. Today I am drinking coffee. Uh, Shenley? <laughs> I am drinking um, a Corona beer uh, with a little bit of grenadine and lime juice in it. Sounds good. Yeah. Reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists, present, or former employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. And now I'm going to turn the episode over to Shenley, who picked the article, and will lead the discussion. Thank you, Tony. Uh, I am Shenley Kent, a current 1L student at Dickinson Law School. Um, the article that I chose uh, for the group to discuss tonight was from uh, UMass Law Review, um, entitled, Putting the plug in the jug, the malady of alcoholism and substance addiction in a legal profession and a proposal for reform. Um, this was by Alexander Robjar. I think that's how you said the last name. And uh, the reason I was curious about this particular article is uh, because, uh, as a form of, I guess, uh, professional um, development for the school, um, the 1L students had to sit in on a series of uh, lectures and um, we had a speaker from uh, Lawyers Concern for Lawyers. Um, I cannot remember the woman's name, but she was the executive director. And um, she basically talked about her struggles with addiction um, and how she overcame that. And um, I was just really surprised and kind of taken aback about uh, what the prevalence of addiction in the law profession. Um, after uh, listening to her um, speech, I did a little bit of research myself, and it really is a very pervasive issue in the industry. Um, not just substance addiction, but um, addiction all around, shopping, gambling, um, sex, uh, just food, all types of addictions across the gamut. Um, so I just kind of was curious about this. Um, so I wanted to bring it forward to our group to kind of have a discussion and just um, kind of make sure that we have any type of, uh, you know, future warnings or things to look out for uh, for ourselves and our colleagues in the profession and kind of, you know, try to mitigate or uh, work, work, come up with a workaround so that we can kind of um, stop the stigma with uh, behaviors that lead to substance abuse. So um, it's just Tony and myself here tonight. Um, so we'll just kind of have a dialogue going back and forth. Um, did you have a chance to read the article, Tony? I did, um, and I thought it was interesting. Um, it was, you know, you, you can read it in a couple ways. I think that it laid out the um, potential harms well enough. The proposed solution, um, it, it, which was in this article, it was to propose a requirement that lawyers report um, a lawyer that they thought that uh, had a chemical dependency or addic addiction to some type of, of body, um, I thought was interesting and potentially a little bit dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. The um, the body that would be making the decisions about what happened afterwards, the article kind of specifically said, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have to follow uh, formal rules of evidence and would be closed and. That to me is like, I, I understand the idea there was to kind of lessen the burden um, so that it could be more of an informal um, type of hearing. 
but not having formal rules of evidence and having closed hearings kind of gets into kind of a star chamber type thing where it's like you have mm-hmm. this body that's making decisions and you don't know how they're making the decisions or what what that's coming from. Um, and there was a lot of consideration as far as sanctioning lawyers who have these uh, problems, which I, I think... Like I said, I think it's adequately established in the article and with the other presentations that they do occur in the in, in the profession. Um, that question of whether or not people should be sanctioned, it kind of goes both ways for me. Um, mm. I I don't know what what or were you thinking on that? Well, I just I agree with you. Like you know, there really wasn't. Um, and I, I mean, these are I understand that these are all suggestions, but. I feel like if um, sometimes suggestions can turn into actual tangible things, and I didn't really feel comfortable uh, with the fact that uh, there was a specific body uh, making these decisions behind closed doors without a a formalized rule of evidence um, that will be followed um, as far as from a policy or procedure standpoint. And I really just felt like, my gosh, like this is somebody's livelihood that, you know, they worked very hard for to get. Um, you know, I understand that there is some malfeasance uh, from some of these attorneys, as, as outlined even in this um, article. But goodness, I just, I really didn't feel comfortable with taking uh, that level of punitive, uh, with, um, not retaliation, but punitive damages against someone who who suffers from a mental health disorder. Yeah, I, I think I agree. Um with that idea. Um, I do think that like you do have to protect clients at the same time. Yeah, right. Yeah, and absolutely. it's like, um, one thing that what that sticks out for me in this and also reading about character and fitness and other things like that. Um, a lot of lawyer misconduct involves misuse of client funds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that if like lawyers uh, trust accounts were auditable, and like some percentage were audited every year just to make sure that everybody was doing what they're supposed to be doing. You could catch a lot of those and treat them mm-hmm. as financial crimes right? rather than trying to attack it through the addiction side. Not that I think the addiction side should be um, left alone. I, I've actually, so I've been very impressed with how the legal profession, at least in Pennsylvania seems to be, dealing with mental illness and addiction and mm-hmm. things like that. The school provides um, for free and completely anonymous mental health uh, visits if you want them. The lawyers, Concern for Lawyers exists in Pennsylvania, and they'll, they'll set people up with help as long as you know it's before the, they get as far as the disciplinary type thing. And to draw back to episode one, I'm minded of um, – you know, I'm a pilot, or I used to work as a pilot. The We don't want people who are suffering from mental illness or addiction flying airplanes either. Mm-hmm. But the rules um, back then, at least, were that if you sought treatment for a mental illness or you sought treatment for um, a- any type of mental disorder, you would lose your medical certification, which you need in order to fly. And it would oh, be a wow. six-month review for the FAA to review it. And there were a lot of articles, especially after there was a crash of a German Wings aircraft where a 
the suspicion is that the, that the co-pilot locked the captain out of the cockpit and then committed suicide with the airliner. Um, oh my goodness! After that accident, there were a lot of articles in like pilot magazines that were saying things like, you know, don't worry, you will fly again, and so on. But uh, as a working pilot, it's like, but I can't take six months off. Um, <laughs> you know, unpaid. Uh, while while the FAA reviews my file to find out that mm-hmm. I was suffering from minor anxiety or whatever, um, and so as a result, pilots, you know, ten fifteen years ago would not seek help for mental illness. In comparison to bar exam, like they're pretty straightforward. That you know, as long as it's not something that, um, at least the Pennsylvania bar, if if it's not something that affects your ability to provide services and represent your client and do and do all those things, you know, they're not going to deny you a membership in the bar. Um, so I, I was surprised by that, but I don't know. Um, do you think that there's enough mental health support in the industry? I think you actually have more knowledge of how the industry really works than I do. I, um, so I want to kind of circle back around to what you said about the interest zone, the, the funds uh, being misappropriated from the attorney, the client funds being misappropriated. Um, and, and I was kind of wondering about that too, because I'm like, I was thinking like, are, are they not putting them into the IOLTA trust or, you know, are they just kind of like, I, it seems like pop, they're probably just keeping that money for themselves and not uh, putting them into that interest bearing account so that there is no proper, um, accounting or you know just uh, kind of like uh keeping track of that so that was one thing i was thinking i was i, I was glad you brought that up though because I, I was thinking about that um as far as um i i personally um i mean i think that there's a lot of uh mental health services available now whether or not someone takes advantage of that now that's the other thing i think the stigma um around it is, is kind of what might cause people to kind of have this behavior in the shadows um, because I feel like, uh, you know, even law school and the law profession is such a hyper, um, hyper competitive atmosphere. People might think that, uh, you know, the, their colleagues, their clients, or whomever might think less of them because they struggle, you know, with these things. So, you know, I, I think that the, the, you know, like we were talking about the lawyers concern for lawyers and, you know, the uh, mental health services that are available. Uh, I think it's out there, but I think one, one challenge that they're probably dealing with is just trying to remove the stigma of seeking help before these type of behaviors, uh, you know, manifest and get out of control. Um, it, so, um, yeah, I think, the, I think that the, the help is there. Now, whether or not people actually pursue it or recognize that they have a problem or recognize that they need help, that's, that's a totally different thing. Right. Um, so if, if you happen, like this is a total hypothetical, like uh, let's say you're at a practicing attorney uh, doing your administrative law and you realize that one of your colleagues has an addiction problem, like would you feel comfortable talking to them about it or would you mind your business or like how would you proceed? Yeah, that's, that's the real question, right? Um, and the... I certainly think that I would feel comfortable depending on what 
the exact relationship is. I, I may feel comfortable talking to the person. I would feel really leery before um, like going to a supervisor or going to a, mm-hmm. to a board or something like that. Um, it kind of depends on the extent to which uh, the coworker or colleagues work is impacting the clients. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, and it's, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, do you feel that you could report somebody? No, I, I wouldn't. No, I, I don't think, feel like I would again. Like I, I just kind of go back to the point, like how hard someone's work to actually get barred, uh, you know, going through law school. Right going through uh, the process of studying for the bar and everything like that. Um, I, I mean, I hope that I would be like you and, and want to pull the person aside and have a conversation with them. But I also feel like, you know, I would probably just mind my business and just say, yeah, you know, this person has a, I would, you know, think to myself, this person probably has a problem, but you know, it, it's really up to them to come to terms with their problem and um, seek help. Um, I will probably try to offer support in other ways, not necessarily, um, you know, bringing, uh, trying to amplify their addiction, but just, you know, try to offer support in another way saying like, you know, would you, I'm here for you. You know, if you need help with anything, please reach out, you know, you can like, let's talk or, you know, just try to be supportive in those ways. But, Actually, um, you know, confronting someone that I think has an addiction, uh, you know, with that, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that personally. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, I think I, I have been reasonably lucky. I don't think I have worked with people that I identified as having some kind of problem, um, with, with alcohol or other addictions. Um, every workplace I've been in has had some type of, um, employee assistance hotline or something. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, you can mention the existence of that, those types of things in meetings and stuff like that, you know, just, Hey, everybody remember that we have this thing available, but getting to the point where you're reporting somebody, (laughs) you know, and, and even talking to somebody can be taken wrong, right? Right. You you can ruin a long-term relationship working relationship with somebody but and I, and I think that that's why I probably would be risk averse to doing that approaching someone um and say you know hey you know I'm kind of worried about your <laughs> you know your addictive personality or I just you know I feel like a lot of people you know people have the right to be left alone um and also it was I need to mind my business so I and yeah that's probably just the approach that I would take yeah um so what do you think about this, like, uh, proposed, like, disciplinary action? If, a, if an attorney was to be reported for, you know, substance abuse or, you know, misappropriating money, like, um, do you think it would be appropriate for, like, the sanctions to be progressive? Or do you think it should just kind of, like, be um, a quick quick thing that's done and, you know, sanctions are announced, you know, the the uh, either they're this bot or whatever, and then everybody kind of moves on. Like, how do you how do you feel about that? So I I, I was kind of impressed that um, excuse me from the cases that they showed in the 
um, article, it seemed like courts were using it kind of as a mitigating factor, but not an exculpatory factor. Like, so um, in, in the article, um, there was uh, it, it provided a couple of different examples of attorneys who um, had alcohol problems and, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, had problems. So in Kersey, uh, there was, was a large number of ethical violations in about two years. Um, it says ranging from misappropriation of client funds to, to basic neglect. And they referred him for disbarment. Um, and while the proceedings were going, the guy enters a detox program and apparently uh, was able to maintain complete abstinence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so the um, a Court of Appeals, when they were reviewing the uh, board's recommendation, they said that his alcoholism and current state of the rehabilitation was was a reasonable mitigating fact, um, mm. factor. And so they stayed the disbarment and they put him on like a five-year probation. Then there was another case that they gave us in the article um, where the guy, again, had an alcohol problem. He did a bunch of a bunch of misconduct type things, and there, um, in that case, there was no rehabilitation. And so the board said, "Well, the alcoholism by itself, without the recovery, is is not a mitigating factor." And they disbarred him. That was the Driscoll case. Um, and like that seems pretty reasonable to me, right? I think so. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, I, I think that, um, and, and there are other success stories too, with people who have rehabilitated themselves and either re reinstate, got reinstated to the bar or something like that. Um, and, and I, you know, I mean, we, you people, as you had mentioned earlier, they put so much effort and society put so much resources into creating a lawyer as you get through law school. It's a shame to waste it, right? If, yeah. if it's salvageable. Um, but uh, it does seem reasonable that if you're not going to rehabilitate yourself, you can't just keep, keep on keeping on. And, and, you know, the client is the person who really has to be protected, not the attorney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really ultimately it. So, um, like, how do you feel about this? Like, do you think that there's just like a, I mean, there's millions and millions of attorneys. Do you feel like it's just a few bad apples who are, you know, given a bunch of bad, uh, a bad name? Or do you feel like, this is just something that, like with the pressures that come along, you know, with the job or with, uh, you know, performing so that's an, in this type of work. That's an interesting question because, um, like, I think about myself and, like, stereotypically, law students are, you know, they study really hard and they drink at night, right, and all that. I probably have three alcoholic drinks a year, um, and. You know, um, it's not my place to judge anybody, and it's not anybody else's place to judge me as long as nothing's going wrong. Um, we, uh, I've worked in other fields where there was tight um, or high pressure. I, I was a pilot, and stereotypically, the pilot, you know, you you fly, you make that amazing landing, and then you go to the bar, 
right? <laughs> um, and, you know, that's, but not everybody does that. Um, and I do think that, like, as I've gotten older, it's easier to not, to still be social with my coworkers, um, but drink coffee or, mm-hmm. but, you know, um, so I don't know that it's like just the fact that there's pressure means that people have to drink, but mm-hmm. there is pressure for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, you know, thinking about my own alcohol consumption <laughs> after like reading this article and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> you know, like, do I need to cut back or I, you know, like what is too much? When does it, uh, you know, when does it get to the point of impairment? I don't think I, I don't think I have a, a drinking problem. Um, as I'm saying, you're drinking my Corona. Um, but, you know, I just don't even want to um, open up the opportunity of it. I know, I mean, just seeing it for myself after, you know, when everything shut down with coronavirus and I was just kind of like stuck in a house. I remember, I remember my um, alcohol consumption and my screen time consumption both were just like out of this world. And I was like, mm-hmm. I need to get myself together. Um, and I wasn't in like a, a high pressure job or anything like that. It was just kind of like I was like bored at home with nothing to do, uh, passing the time by. So I, um, I, I, like I'm cognizant of, of this fact and I, you know, I definitely don't want to be a statistic and I definitely want to look out for myself and other, uh, law school colleagues that, um, you know, I've become close with as we go through this journey. But I guess this this is like a real thing and this is a real concern for the industry. Um, again, going back to the woman who was from the LCL, you know, when she talked about she had her injury um, and that kind of uh, being on that pain med, it's kind of led to her um, studying more. And then it just kind of, it, it was like a gateway drug that went, you know, really spiraled out of control. And I was just shocked that she was a law clerk and having, um, her drugs delivered to work and it just seems so risky, but it was a risk that she was willing to take. Um, so I guess these are just kind of like, I, I kind of like hearing these cautionary tales uh, because they kind of helped me um, check myself. Um, so that, that was really why I wanted to bring up this topic. I, I do think that um, lady, and I'm, apologize to her if she hears this i can't remember her name i can't remember her name either um but her 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 story was actually really interesting because she had become addicted to the painkillers not out of any type of recreational desire or even out of some type to intent to like relax or anything it it really was like it allowed her to function better Mm -hmm. right um and it's like that's the trap right because we all I guess if we're in law school, we're high achievers enough that we we care deeply about how well we're performing. Um, that that would be a trap that like I could see myself falling into. Not that I intend. Yeah, to. I just feel like it, that could that could be any student, anybody. Right. Yeah, um, her name is uh, Lori Bedden. So if you happen to hear this, Lori Bedden, your story really did impact us. Um, and, and that was kind of what led to this story, uh, me taking this article. So, um, you know, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I want to see if there was any other questions that I had that I wanted to highlight. Um, um, I think we kind of touched on all of the questions that I, I wanted to bring up. 
uh, for this particular topic. So I don't have anything else to add. If you wanted to add anything else, Tony. No, um, I, I didn't think so. I thought it was a wor- uh, definitely a worthwhile article to read, and it's a topic that I think that we will probably maybe return to in this series later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are still working out the kinks on our schedules uh, for when we're recording this and stuff. Um, but um, I'm good uh, if you Great. are. Um, yeah, I'm good. So in that case... Um, and with that, we'll close. Uh, thanks again to our, our panelists, uh, Shenley and myself. And audio post-processing was by Mohammed Salim. See you next time. <laughs>